Hello and welcome back to another installment of Grasping Scripture. Today we'll be looking at the 16th chapter of John's Gospel, and I'm glad you could join us for this study as we go through the Gospel of John. Now, if you're new to this podcast or even this section that we're doing on the Gospel of John, I would encourage you go back to the beginning. Start in chapter one. There's a lot that builds to this point. But if you're just looking for a place to wade in, then, you know, no better time than the present, no better place than here. John chapter 16, we'll be looking into Jesus's encouragement to the disciples, his talking about their sadness being turned to joy and the work of the Holy Spirit in the lives of a believer and specifically in their lives. So I welcome you as we begin digging into this text and seeing what is here for us to hear. Let's turn to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you for Jesus, our Savior. We thank you for your redemptive work in this world, that the light has pierced the darkness, and that you may be made known, that we may receive forgiveness for our sins and a right standing with you. Now, Lord, we thank you for your word, that we may study it, that we may hear your voice speaking to us through it. Guide our thoughts, give us clarity of mind and ears to hear your voice. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, again, as we're in chapter 16, we are still in that section of scripture. This is after the Last Supper, but prior to the arrest that evening when Jesus is giving this uh, uh, multifaceted encouragement to his disciples, trying to prepare them, those last teachings, if you will. His public ministry has come to a close at this point, but he is still instilling all that he can within that core group of disciples. And so we get to chapter 16, which begins this way. Jesus is saying to them, I have told you these things so that you won't abandon your faith. Now, he just warned Peter about denying the faith, you know, before the cock crows and and all of that. So continuing the conversation, he says, I've told you these things so that you won't abandon your faith. For you will be expelled from the synagogues, and the time is coming when those who kill you will think they are doing a holy service of God. This is because they have never known the Father or me. Yes, I'm telling you these things now, so that when they happen, you will remember my warning. I didn't tell you earlier because I was going to be with you for a while longer. So these are kind of parting words. Hey, I'm telling you this now because you need to know it. I'm not going to be here when this starts happening. So heads up, here's what it's going to look like. And I told you these things so that you wouldn't abandon your faith. And then he goes into, you're going to get kicked out of the synagogues, which, you know, keep in mind in the Jewish community to be kicked out of the synagogue was to be cut off from your family, from your access to work. If you had a trade, like most of them were fishermen, they would have no buyers for their fish, um, no places they could shop for their own groceries. I mean, it just, it affected every aspect of life. Not only would they be kicked out of the synagogues, but then he gets to the next part and the time is coming when those who kill you will think they are doing a whole, wait a minute, kill me. Yeah. 
those who kill you think they're doing a holy service to God. How do they know that? Because they don't know God and they don't know Jesus. He says, this is because they have never known the Father or me. It is amazing what a lost and deceived world can do thinking it's doing good. Even those that claim to be serving God but do not know him can perpetrate some horrendous things in the name of God that have nothing to do with God. Because even though they think they're rendering a service, or as he says here, a holy service for God, the truth is they've never known the Father or Him. I don't think that's all that different today than it was in that day. He goes on and says, yes, I'm telling you these things now so that when they happen, you'll remember my warning. In other words, so it's not a surprise. When you see it happening, you go, oh, I know what this is about. He told us about this. So we know he's in charge, that he'll see it through. And it was to encourage the disciples so they wouldn't abandon their faith, but they would endure. In verse 5, he says, but now I am going away to the one who sent me. And not one of you is asking where I am going. Instead, you grieve because of what I've told you. But in fact, it is best for you that I go away. Because if I don't, the advocate won't come. Now, he'd already talked about the advocate a little bit in the previous chapter. But he says, the advocate won't come. If I do go away, then I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world of its sin and God's righteousness, or and of God's righteousness, and of the coming judgment. The world's sin is that it refuses to believe in me. Righteousness is available because I go to the Father, and you will see me no more. Judgment will come because the ruler of this world has already been judged. Now, he's just covered an immense amount of ground between verse 5 and verse 11. And the core of it is this. There is a judgment coming. This is... Uh, if you will, the first part of what Isaiah talked about when he referenced the great and terrible day of the Lord. This is the day when God's judgment becomes evident on the earth, and that judgment is a dividing point. And the, the crux or the pivot of that dividing point, the peak of that dividing point, is in fact Christ. The world is being judged, in essence, because the light has now entered the darkness and is piercing through the darkness, and it makes it evident that things are either light or dark, where before that was less evident, shall we say. He said, but now I'm going away to the one who sent me, and not one of you is asking where I'm going. And that wasn't a, you know, you already know, so you're not asking. He's going... I've noticed none of you are even inquiring about where I'm going because you're still hung up on the fact I'm leaving. Instead, you grieve because of what I've told you. But in fact, it's best for you that I go away. In other words, you know, it's, it's not a problem that I'm going away. It's best for you because if I don't, the advocate won't come. When Christ is present in the flesh, we don't have his indwelling spirit. 
If I do go away, then I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world of its sin and of God's righteousness and of the coming judgment. You see, the world was about to cast judgment on Jesus. It was about to look at his signs and miracles and decide we believe that he is the Son of God, the Savior of the world, or we will reject him. And then they execute him, thinking they had carried out their judgment, when in fact, all of that was part of God's work to judge the world. Because we are based, or we judge Christ based on certain criteria. He judges the world based on certain criteria. Now, if we know God and we know Christ, then we acknowledge him as Savior and as Lord. But if we have judged him and rejected him, well, then that is a judgment on us, as it says in verse 8. And when he comes, he will convict the world of its sin, of God's righteousness, and of the coming judgment. And then verse 9, he explains, the world's sin is that it refuses to believe in me. There is only one sin that will condemn us to hell, and that is the sin of refusing to believe in Jesus. Because that is the one thing we have to do to receive forgiveness and salvation. That is trust in Christ, believe in him. And that's it. We think, no, but I've done all this good stuff for God. I've been a good person. I've helped other people. That's great. But it doesn't make a bit of difference in eternity because you miss the one thing that matters. The world's sin is that it refuses to believe in me. Verse 10, righteousness is available. You can be made righteous. And it's not about what you do. It's about who you know. Through Jesus, you can be made right with God. Take that step. Righteousness, again, 10. Righteousness is available because I go to the Father. And you will see me no more. Judgment will come. Because the ruler of this world has already been judged. Satan has already been judged. And he rules over this world. But you don't have to face the same outcome he does. You are being given the gift of salvation if you will reach out to Christ and take hold of the gift he is offering. That gift of righteousness, of being made right with God not based on our own works, but based on what he has done and who he is. So I have to ask, have you taken hold of that gift that he offers? Because it means everything. It is that dividing point. The world's sin is that it refuses to believe in me. Is that your sin too? And is it time to do something about it? In verse 12, he continues on saying, There is so much more I want to tell you, but you can't bear it now. When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. 
He will not speak on his own, but will tell you what he has heard. He will tell you about the future. He will bring me glory by telling you whatever he receives from me. All that belongs to the Father is mine. This is why I said, the Spirit will tell you whatever he receives from me. So Jesus is saying, look, this is a connection between me and the Father. All that belongs to the Father is mine. But then he's also saying, look, with the Spirit, he's going to bring me glory by telling you whatever he receives from me. Hmm. Wow, there's almost a Trinitarian thing there. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, three but one. Yeah, there is. It's not accidental. And that should give us confidence. The spirit that we have within us, the indwelling presence of Christ. In fact, Paul over in Romans 8 refers to him as the spirit of Christ. The Holy Spirit of God lives in us and empowers us and teaches us. Because even the disciples there, having been with Jesus for some three, three and a half years in his earthly ministry, spending all that time together, sitting under his teaching, He's telling them, well, you can't bear to take everything that I've got to tell you, everything I want to tell you, but through the Spirit, what he's saying is, through the Spirit, you're still going to learn it, even when I'm not here. When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. He will not speak on his own, but will tell you what he's heard. He will tell you about the future. He will bring me glory by telling you whatever he receives from me. All that belongs to the Father is mine. This is why I said the Spirit will tell you whatever he receives from me. This should be a great encouragement to us. The Spirit of God speaking in our lives, showing us things that we otherwise would not know. Even to the point of, he will tell you about the future. Now, this isn't necessarily a, hey, this is what's going to happen next week, but he reveals parts of God's plan for the future to us. And God's plan is perfect, and God's plan is what's going to happen. And that should give us encouragement. God will show us what we need to know, and he will do it through his spirit. We've got to stay connected with him. We have to listen to his spirit, that spirit of truth that comes and guides us into all truth. He then, in verse 16, approaches things a little bit different. He gives them an encouragement, um, talking about how their, their current sadness and the sadness that's about to get even worse is going to turn itself around, not turn itself around, going to turn around into joy. It's not going to happen by itself. He says, in a little while, you won't see me anymore. But a little while after that, you will see me again. Now, little while, that's not really a, a finite, you know, term there. Oh, a little while, that's three and a half hours. No, he's just saying soon, soon, in a little while, short period of time, you're not going to see me anymore. But then, you know, another short period of time after that, you're going to see me again. What's he talking about? He's talking about the death, the burial, and then the resurrection. 
Some of the disciples asked each other, what does he mean when he says, in a little while you won't see me, but then you will see me, and I'm going to the Father? What does he mean by a little while? We don't understand. Jesus realized they wanted to ask him about it, so he said, are you asking yourselves what I meant? I said, in a little while you won't see me. But a little while after that, you will see me again. I tell you the truth. You will weep and mourn over what is going to happen to me. But the world will rejoice. You will grieve, but your grief will suddenly turn into wonderful joy. It will be like a woman suffering the pains of labor. When her child is born, her anguish gives way to joy because she has brought a new baby into the world. So, you have sorrow now, but I will see you again. Then, you will rejoice, and no one can rob you of that joy. At that time, you won't need to ask me for anything. I tell you the truth, you will ask the Father directly, and He will grant your request, because you use my name. You haven't done this before. Ask using my name, and you will receive and you will have abundant joy. Now, don't take the passage out of context. We've already looked at other passages like this. This isn't a license to, you know, cash in with the sugar daddy in the sky by using the name of Jesus. I mean, that's just ridiculous. But there are some that naively approach this passage of Scripture and go, hey, if I just ask in the name of Jesus, I get whatever I want. That's not what he says. When he talks about using his name, to function in the name of your rabbi, because these are disciples. Function in the name of your master means you behave in such a way that you reflect the character and behavior of the master. To pray in the name of Jesus is to pray like Jesus would pray, to ask for the things Jesus would be asking for. So before you try to use this as a cash-in with God to get whatever I want type of passage, back up the bus a little bit and check your perspective. Is what you're approaching God for godly? Is what you're approaching God for the stuff Jesus would approach God for? If not, you are not acting in his name. You are not asking in his name, using, making your request, using his name in the way he's talking about here. Now, that's a side note. This whole passage, 16 through 24, he's talking about the reality of their situation. He's warned them he's going away, but then he's saying, look, you're, you're about to get hit with a massive amount of grief. You're going to have sorrow and sadness because you're going to watch me be tried, falsely accused, beaten, crucified, laid in the tomb. Now he's not spelling it all out like that, but we know what's coming. We've read the rest of the book. He's saying, look, it's going to be crushing, but it's momentary. It will pass. And then there's going to be joy. And it's a type of joy that nothing can take away from you. In fact, one of the aspects of that new joy is that you're going to be able to approach the father directly like nobody's ever done. You're going to be able to do that. So the joy is coming. 
as he ends verse 24, and you will have abundant joy. In verse 25, he begins to explain why he's been talking the way he has been, not just about his departure and return, but he says this, I have spoken of these matters in figures of speech, but soon I will stop speaking figuratively and will tell you plainly all about the Father. Then you will ask in my name. I'm not saying I will ask the Father on your behalf, for the Father himself loves you dearly because you love me and believe that I came from God. Yes, I came from the Father into the world, and now I will leave the world and return to the Father. So there, that even that even fleshes out this idea of praying, um, using Jesus' name and that new relationship with the Father that's going to happen after Christ's resurrection. Why? Because he has atoned for our sin. That sin which separated us from God is removed from the equation by the sacrifice of Christ on the cross. He took our sin and he paid the penalty for it. So that is no longer a penalty on our heads. So there's nothing hampering the relationship between us and the Father. And so when we approach the Father in the name of Jesus, we're not asking Jesus, he says there, I'm not saying I will ask the Father on your behalf. We're not asking Jesus to ask the Father because it says the Father himself loves you dearly because you love me and believe that I came from God. See, our relationship with God the Father fundamentally changed at the cross. It's different. It's nothing like it was. And for each one of us today, because the cross is a historical event from 2,000 plus years ago, but for each one of us today, when we turn to Christ in faith and come to know him as our Savior and Lord, then our relationship with the Father fundamentally changes because we were enemies of God until we accept the forgiveness of Christ on our behalf. Until we believe that he came from the Father. until we call on his name and are saved. And then everything changes. Our relationship with the Father changes because we are saved and made clean through Christ, made righteous through Christ. We can approach the Father. In the name of Jesus. But we can approach the Father. We don't have to ask Jesus to do it on our behalf because he's already cleared out every obstacle. Yes, I came from the Father into the world, and now I will leave the world and return to the Father. 
Then his disciples said, verse 29, then his disciples said, at last you're speaking plainly and not figuratively. Now we understand that you know everything and there's no need to question you. From this, we believe that you came from God. So the disciples, they're finally going, oh, finally, (laughs) you're speaking plain. We get it now. Now, so much more of what he said in this chapter and the preceding chapter, they will understand in a few days. Time we get to the resurrection, the Holy Spirit, the advocate in their lives shows them the truth of it. The memories come back and suddenly it makes sense. Well, this is one of those glimpses of it making sense. Jesus has now said things in such a way that they're going, oh, I get it. And that's a big deal. Now, as we round out this chapter in the last few verses, Jesus asks them, you know, in response or following their their statements about, oh, we get it. Now we believe you came from God. Jesus asks, do you finally believe but the time is is coming, indeed it's here now, when you will be scattered, each one going his own way, leaving me alone. Yet I'm not alone because the Father is with me. I have told you all this so that you may have peace in me. Here on earth you will have many trials and sorrows, but take heart because I have overcome the world. Now, that's his encouragement to them. They are about to face hardship. They are about to face challenges. They are about to see the reality of the fact that when Jesus is arrested, they, for the most part, scatter. Um, after his crucifixion and death, they they do gather as they were told to, but they hmm, they don't do it with much hope. And here he's reminding them again, I've told you all of this so that you may have peace in me. Here on earth, you'll have many trials and sorrows, but take heart because I have overcome the world. Now, that's a simple verse. Many of us have heard it before, but there's something important there. Uh, Yes, take heart because he has overcome the world. That is our victory. It is found in Jesus. Hey, that would make a good song. Victory in Jesus? Yeah. No, it is a song. Look it up. Um, But yeah, we find our victory in Jesus. We are overcomers because of Jesus and he has overcome the world. But sometimes we forget the part that comes right before that. Here on earth, you will have many trials and sorrows. The promise is not that this life is going to be easy. There won't be any problems. The promise is he is victorious and we are with him in that victory. But take heart. I have overcome the world. That was his encouragement to the disciples as they were about to face the the challenges and the persecution that came with the trial and crucifixion of Jesus, that that period of, of seeming hopelessness between the cross and the empty tomb. And yet even today we find encouragement from these words. We find a challenge to us from these words. Take heart. He has overcome the world. Heavenly Father, we thank you. 
for giving us your word, for encouraging us, for being honest with us, telling us that there will be challenges, there will be trials and sorrows, but also the truth that there is blessing, there is joy, there is overcoming this world because you have overcome the world. Lord, we thank you that you save us. In Jesus' name, amen.